Is the next movement, yo. Roots crew to regiment, black thought, me amo. In this thing for life, yo, and that's final. Kid, you know the title, ain't no reason to remind you how I talk, hustle from New York to Brussels. First, it hit you in the head and then in all your muscles. Think deep, we call it Rafiki. And to read the definition of a true MC, I'm subsurface, it's hard for y'all to beat me. But say that.
Rafiki. Rafiki is the name of that song, and the group is Zap Mama, Z-A-P-M-A-M-A. I believe they're from Congo. You can hear that Congolese guitar there at the end, and also the bass line sounds very Congolese to me. I've also played Papa Wemba on this podcast before, um, a couple times, I think. I, I think I played his song Wei, W-E-I, um, at the end of the very special episode that I did in Bangkok with, uh, with Bennett. Anyway, uh, he's also from Congo, Papa Wimba. I think he died recently. He got in a lot of trouble. He, he was the James Brown of Congo. That's the way I remember people describing him to me. He got in trouble uh, at one point because he kept coming to Europe to go on tour with his band and like a lot of African bands, uh, you know, there were 20, 25 people in the band and, you know, the different people every time. And at some point the, uh, the French police realized that people were coming in the band and staying in France. And essentially what he was doing was smuggling his friends and family into Europe, uh, in the guise of having this massive band. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It's interesting. Cause when I read that, I remember thinking, well, that's a clash of cultures right there. You know, in African cultures, generally, uh, if you strike it rich, you're expected to take care of everybody. And uh, I think that even carries over into African-American culture to some extent. And I don't know whether that's the African connection or if that's just a culture that's forged in poverty and people take care of one another. Uh, it, It relates back to you know, prehistory, as everything does with me, as you may have noticed. Anyway, this is uh, another Roma edition. I'm sitting in my buddy Martin's beautiful apartment in Amsterdam, and I don't feel like going out and walking around. It's a hot day. I was with Wim Hof yesterday in the ice bath, and I feel fantastic, and uh, I got a couple hours till Martin comes home, and we're going to go out for dinner or whatever. So I thought, hey, why don't I put together a Roma episode? I'm sitting here all alone in this big, beautiful apartment. Why not? So here I am. I've been thinking recently, when I was thinking what I wanted to talk about with you today before I get to emails, I was thinking something that's been on my mind recently um, and it's on my mind a lot. I think I've I've alluded to it before on the podcast. Essentially, uh, the sort of fraudulent nature of life. And I know I've talked about it in terms of fame and fortune, getting back to the Papa Wimba situation. Uh, you know, notoriety. There's something innately hypocritical about notoriety because... The underlying assumption in that is that you're different from everyone else and people treat you as if you're different and you know you're not different and so there's a growing gap between who people think you are and who you know you are or or maybe not who but what. And uh, if you've got any fucking sense that gap bothers you and you're aware of it. And the wider the gap grows the more aware of it you are. I don't know how somebody like George Clooney keeps his shit together. You know, I've met a few people like after, I remember after uh, Duncan and I did a live podcast taping, I don't remember whether it was San Francisco or Portland or LA, I don't remember where it was, but I remember 
you know, a bunch of people were waiting in line to to meet us. I assume primarily him, but you know, whatever. And this this young woman like was so nervous that she couldn't talk. Now I don't know if she was tripping. I don't know what was up, but she was just like giggly and couldn't form a sentence and just held this thing out for us to sign and was looking at us like we were lions in a cage or something. It was really strange. And I've seen that kind of thing in book signings I've done or events I've done where there's this this force field of like they just saw me on the stage or they saw me on TV and there's this like, oh, my God, oh, my God, you're that guy. Uh, I've just seen it a little bit, but someone like George Clooney sees it every time he fucking walks out the door, you know? I don't know how he keeps his shit together because, you know, they're treating him like he's some other kind of creature and he knows he's not. So how does all this relate to, to what's been on my mind recently? I've been thinking, you know, I've got some friends who are going through stuff. They're, they're, you know, issues, body issues, beauty issues, you know, beautiful people who don't think they're beautiful. Um, you know, people with beautiful bodies who think they're too fat or, you know, too white or too dark or too fucking whatever. And it's it's one of these things that really bothers me because life is so full of not full, but there's so much necessary suffering in life. You know, we get old, we die, our parents die, our friends get sick, tragedy befalls people we love. Shit happens, as they say. Um, but so much of what we suffer from is created by us. So much of it is unnecessary. I remember reading some line, you've probably read it, someone said, you know, Looking back on their life, it's like nine out of the ten things that they stayed awake worrying about never actually happened, you know? And that's probably a pretty low ratio. And that doesn't count the things, you know, women, I yesterday were talking a lot about how so much of what we suffer from is caused by stress. It's caused by us not breathing right. It's caused by us not moving enough. So our tissues aren't, um, you know, there's no circulation in our cells. So they acidify and they build up toxins. And, you know, as he said, with there's too much shit, it stinks. Well, yeah, right. That's sort of a principle of life. You know, the river doesn't flow, it stagnates. That's so the river of your body stagnates. The river of my body stagnates. I don't move enough. I don't walk enough. And our, our minds are the same. We, we fill our minds with stress, imagined bullshit, imagined imperfections, or real imperfections. You know, what the fuck? I could lose 25 pounds. I've got a bald spot. You know, I got yellow fucking teeth. I got. But the key isn't to worry about that shit. The key is to learn to not be affected by it because everybody's got it. The key isn't for me to go get fucking caps put on all my teeth, uh, you know, or to not smile because I'm afraid people are going to see I have yellow teeth. I, was, I remember talking to a dentist about it once when I was a kid. And it was really bothering me. And he said something very funny. I don't think he meant it to be funny, but in retrospect, it was hilarious. He said, he said, look, Chris, everybody has different levels of melatonin. Was it mel no, melanin in their body? I guess, which is the, the thing that, you know, gives color. 
And he said, um, you know, in your case, it's just all in your teeth. <laughs> I was like, I have none in my skin. I don't get suntan. I get tooth tan. I don't know what the fuck. Uh, but anyway, they, you know, the key isn't to, to stress about it. The key is somehow to get past it. Because the truth is, the energy that you have is what people see. It's what they feel. It's are you funny? Are you relaxed? Are you comfortable with yourself? You know, you got a fucking plastic leg. You got, you know, an alcoholic mother. You got, uh, you know, a bad tattoo on your ass. You got, you know, your hair fell out. Whatever. I, I remember Joe Rogan one time. I think it was Joe. Maybe it was Neil Strauss. They're both, they would both be qualified to say this. But one of them said, uh, you know, if you're losing your hair, shave your head because shaving your head's a choice. Losing your hair makes you a victim. So there was, you know, take control. And that doesn't mean take control by going and trying to fix the problem necessarily because a lot of problems just can't be fixed or you, you know, you get a boob job and then you cause another problem. You cause medical issues, you cause um, psychological issues because now you're walking around with the evidence that you were uncomfortable about the way your body was before and now you're uncomfortable about the fact that you're walking around with the evidence that you were uncomfortable about the way your body was before and then it spirals into other shit, you know? So the problem is not your body. The problem is the way you're thinking about your body. Now, I'm not saying don't work out. I'm not saying don't eat properly. I'm not saying don't take care of your body. Respect your body. Sure, love your body. But don't see your body as the enemy. Don't see your body as the problem. Don't see your body as something that's you know ruining your life because if your ass was a little smaller or your skin was a little darker or your teeth were a little whiter, then everything would be fine because I'm telling you that's bullshit. One of the ways I know that that's bullshit is that I lived in that mansion with fashion models for whatever it was, three years or four years or whatever it was. And uh, so I spent a lot of time with very beautiful people. I'll tell you two stories, one about a man and one about a woman from that time. One was um, this fashion model, uh, lingerie model, I guess was her special area. And um, she was lovely, obviously. She was, uh, you know, looked lovely. She was on, you know, you'd see her on billboards driving down the highway. You'd see her on television. You know, she was, she was one of these women that other women looked at and probably hated because she had the, you know, she was tall. She was beautiful face, big, beautiful breasts ass perfect everything just perfect long legs everything you know whatever she was a lingerie model um and i gave her massages for a while and her boyfriend was a friend of mine and when i give a massage it's a massage there's no hanky panky right there's no and i i won't say i don't feel any erotic energy if if the person's attractive I do, but it's all in the hands. It's all in the muscles. It's it's erotic, but it's erotic the way touching a horse can be erotic. You know, it, it, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's not sexual. It's it's a bodily energy flow and exchange, but it's not uh, it's not sexual at all. So. So I, I gave her massages a lot, and um, when we did the massage, she would be naked. She'd just take off all her clothes, and, and you know, my thing was like, whatever you're comfortable with. If you want to wear your underwear, you want to 
put a towel here, there. You want to you wear your fucking pajamas, then I won't use oil, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. Because if somebody's uptight, that defeats the purpose of the whole thing, right? So, um, and she would come in and take off all her clothes and lie down on the table, but she always wore a towel around her breasts. Not her ass, not her pussy, just her breasts. So, okay, whatever. I do the massage. She would undo the towel when she was lying on her stomach, and I'd do her back and everything. And then she'd, you know, turn over, and the towel would be across her breast. But I mean, everything else completely naked. And so one night I was out with her boyfriend, and uh, he said something about how, hey, she's you know really happy. You're, you know, you've helped her with the massage because you know these these models they go out and they stand in like up to their waist in a swimming pool in winter. And they're shooting it as if it's summer, you know, and they're freezing their asses off. It's kind of like a Wim Hof thing, I guess. Um, but anyway, so then they come back and they're all like con- contracted and, and, you know, their back's all tight and everything. Um, so anyway, he was saying, hey, you know, sh- that's great. She's really happy. You know, apparently you have magic fingers and all this. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I feel a little, uh, I don't know, a little confused because I assume that she knows that I'm not creeping on her at all but she always wears this towel across her breast but like nothing on her ass so I'm not really sure what's going on and he said well yeah here's the thing man she has um I don't remember what the condition's called but some kind of condition where she has um cysts that grow in her breasts and so she's had to have them surgically removed and she's got some scars on her breasts and she's uncomfortable about that So here's this woman who you see on television, you know, advertising bras and panties or bikinis or whatever. You see her on billboards and everybody says, that's it. That's it. She's got it. Well, now you know. She doesn't. There's always something. Another guy I knew, probably the most beautiful man I've ever known, physically and also mentally. He's a really sweet guy. He's from a farm. He was in the military, got discovered. Next thing you know, he's a fashion model. And, uh, yeah, I don't want to say anything more about him because this is very personal. And, I mean, he doesn't listen to the podcast. I don't think anyone who knows him listens to the podcast, but just in case. This guy uh, is a real sweet dude, but he looks like a super macho, like a fuck beast. You know, he's that kind of, you know, manly, uh, the jaw and the, just everything. Um, but he's a sweetheart. He's a sweet, kind, innocent guy. So what happens? He goes off and, and does a shoot with, uh, you know, in the Bahamas with a couple of Swedish bombshells and, you you know, of course, they're down in the Bahamas for a week and somebody's going to fuck somebody and whatever. And he comes back to Barcelona and he tells me, oh, I'm in love. I'm in love. He shows me pictures. And, of course, these women are gorgeous. And, uh, okay, cool, you're in love. And then uh, a week later, he's heartbroken because she hasn't answered his emails or his phone calls. And he doesn't know what's going on, and he thinks there's something wrong with him, there's something wrong with his body, there's something wrong with the, his, the way he is in bed, there's whatever. And um, so he and I got to be pretty close, and he, you know, unloaded on me. 
And, you know, I would be like, okay, so what exactly happened? Okay, what happened? So you had a good time. I think we had a good time. Yeah, I don't know. And then you came back, and then what? Well, I don't, and then I, I, you know, wrote her a poem, and I sent her this poem. <laughs> it's like you, you sent the Swedish fashion model a poem after you'd, like, had sex once. You know, let me see the poem. And the poem's like, you know, it's a fucking poem. It's a love poem written by a guy with the sort of emotional state and innocence of uh, a young a boy, a, a young man. And so my point is not that there's anything wrong with this guy. He's a wonderful guy. And it's been a long time since I've seen him. I don't know what he's like now. But at the time, he was wonderful. But he was nothing what he looked like. That's my point. He, his look was really strong, but it was not a reflection of his inner being. And the disconnect between those two things was causing him incredible pain because he was being, he was attracting women who wanted what they saw. And what they got was so different that they were completely uninterested in that. And so they just dropped him, one after another after another. Now, this is the best-looking man I've ever known in my life and also one of the men who has been most hurt by women. So I never forget these people. I never forget. And that guy actually made me think a lot about what it's like to be a woman because a lot of women aren't what they look like. They aren't how they present themselves because the culture teaches them present yourself as a sex bomb, present yourself, you know, hold your tits up, get implants, do, you know, wear sexy this, wear sexy that, do your hair this way, do the makeup, get. And none of this is necessarily any kind of a reflection of the person. Right. This is just how you learn to dress, how you learn to present yourself. Maybe you learned it from your mother. Maybe you learned it from your sister. Maybe you learned it from, you know, a fucking fashion magazine or from some TV show or a YouTube channel or who knows. But none of those things, with the possible exception of your mother or your sister, have any idea who the fuck you are. And whether the look that you're doing is uh, in any way a reflection of your inner state. So, yeah, you present yourself, I'm talking to women here, or men, whatever. You present yourself as a certain kind of person, but if that's not who you are, then you're going to get dumped again and again and again. Of course you are, because what kind of women is this fashion model attracting? He's not attracting the sweet, sweet, kind women who would love to get a poem from a guy that they just had sex with, who lament the fact that that kind of thing never happens. Those women aren't going to go anywhere near this guy. They'd be terrified of him. So who are the women he attracts? The fucking man-eaters. The women who want to, like, hey, I'm going to fuck that guy. Look at him. Oh, yeah. Well, those aren't the kind of women who are going to appreciate him at all. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with anybody and anyone's appetites or anything. It's just this disconnect between, you know, the presentation and the reality uh, it can cause a big problem. So, uh, on that note, I don't know that, I don't know if that's, if that makes any sense or if that's meaningful to anyone, but there it is. Okay. Let's go to our first listener email. 
Chris, simply put, it's difficult for me to last longer than a minute while having sex. It's been like that for as long as I can remember. I'm 25, and it's really affecting my life. I've tried uh, exercises uh, and extended masturbation. I don't feel any benefit. Is there anything you would suggest? Michael Smith. I'm joking. (laughs) I'm joking. It's not Michael Smith. Uh, If there is a Michael Smith out there listening to this, that was a joke. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Okay. Well, I don't know. I, at the risk of of TMI kind of situation, I've been thinking about doing a whole episode uh, just about Dick, Dick Lore. Is that a word? Dick Lore? Um, Penis penis information. Um, but I'm not sure. I still, I'm hesitant. I don't know. Talking about dicks, including my own for an hour or something into a microphone doesn't sound like a great idea, but it may be because I'm in, I'm in this weird position where like, I, I guess I can do it. Like nobody can fire me. You know, you guys, you people can stop listening, but that's about the worst thing that can happen. Nobody's going to fire me or kick me out of the country or whatever. And it seems like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of need for honest talk about how dicks work and how to work with them. So I'll, maybe I'll, I don't know. Let me know if you think that's a good idea or, or you think it would skeeve you out or whatever. Let me know. Um, but so as far as this situation goes, you know, when I was when I first learned to masturbate, which was pretty late, I didn't figure out how to masturbate till I was 15. And um you know, all my friends had been doing it since they were 12 or 13, or at least they said they were. Um, but I didn't figure it out because I'm circumcised. And when you're uncircumcised, you can just, because there's the loose skin over your dick, you can just sort of, you know, move your hand back and forth and the skin moves over your dick. And I guess that works. But if you're circumcised, you don't have that extra skin. So if you don't have lube of some sort, then it just hurts. And I didn't figure out that whole lube thing till I was 15. So, but once I did figure it out, um, it very quickly became clear to me that I should use this as a way to cultivate, uh, like, control. Because, maybe it's because I was studying martial arts at the time or something. I'm not sure why, but it was... I knew right away, like, I need, to, I need to figure out, like, you know, where's the point of no return? How close can I get and still pull back? You know, how does this thing work? And so I studied it. I tried things, and, and I figured out, like, okay, you know, I learned to recognize. So I think that's what you need to do. You say that you have tried extended masturbation, but you don't feel any benefit. I'm not sure what that means, you don't feel any benefit. Um you also don't say if you use condoms, if you're with the same woman, uh, or if you're with different women, assuming you're with women at all, you might be with men, I don't know. So there's there's information that's missing that um, is important to this situation. But in general, I would say for guys who are having premature ejaculation issues uh, or any any sexual issue, it's really good to be able to talk with the woman you're with and you know, just be vulnerable, you know, like, Hey, I've got this thing. I know I come too fast. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't want to. Can we try some things? 
And if the woman you're with is worth your time at all, she's going to say, hell yeah. Because I think something that guys don't understand, and, and I'm not saying all women are like this, but in my experience, the vast majority of women really respect um, candor and vulnerability and don't expect you, especially at 25, don't expect you to like be have everything all figured out because they don't have everything figured out either. So the more you let them see that, the more comfortable they're going to be saying, you know what, I have a problem too. Maybe we can work on my problem. And then you've got a pretty cool relationship going there. So that's my first word of advice. Get her involved, assuming it is a her and only one her. Uh, If you're seeing lots of different women or whatever, I don't know. That's a whole different situation. But um, I don't know about extended masturbation, but certainly masturbation where you get to the point where you feel like you're going to come and then stop and don't come. And and if you... Because there is a point of no return. There's a point where you can stop stimulating your dick and you'll come anyway. And so you want to find where that point is and you want to learn to recognize it. So when you're having sex with someone, you start to feel you're getting close to that. That's when you stop and ask her to stop. And actually, women can find it really sexy if you say, just don't move for a second. Just, Just feel it. Just stay there, right? It doesn't have to be like, oh, my God, stop. Ah! It doesn't need to be panic. It can be sexy, you know, or you can, you know, pull out of her and do other things for a while and just let it cool down, you know. Um, maybe let it cool down literally with some ice. Let it cool some snow if you're in the northern climes or New Zealand, Um you know, or just, you know, put it on ice figuratively for a while, go down on her, or kiss her, or talk to her, you know, whatever. There's so many things that you can do in bed with another person that don't involve having, you know, your dick inside them. So I think that's an important thing to understand and mix it up. So now if you're having sex with her and she's like, you know, almost going to come and doesn't want you to stop and you know that's the problem. That's where you really need to talk to her and say, "Look, you know, how about can I make you come? Can I go down on you and then later and then I can, you know, stop and and sort of do what I need to do to get to get this under control because you know, if you're feeling under pressure and you're feeling like, you know, performance anxiety, which is one of the worst phrases in the history of the language, performance, you're not here to perform. We're not performing. We're not on fucking stage. And if you're a porn star, then yeah, okay, performance anxiety. But if you're just, you know, hanging out with a friend, there's no performance going on. So I would um, get as far away from that concept as possible. And... Focus on on the relationship, the feeling, the conversation, and yeah, have sex. See how have sex for a minute, two minutes, whatever it is, until you start to feel like ooh, can't do it, and then see if you can just stop and just be together, and just even inside or outside, whatever, just stay there. See how long you can do that, and if you feel like you're losing that, then then get out and you know do what you need to do. And the more control, it's. I don't, I don't know if this is a good metaphor or not, but it's kind of like, you know, taming a wild horse. Like the longer you're riding, the more relaxed it'll get and the more control you'll have. So I don't know how 
cogent that advice is, but that's my advice. And cold is great. I mean, if you're if you got the you know bowl of ice by the bed, and get some of that on your dick every once in a while, and that'll you know get you back to square one, and that's good. And it's also you know it feels good. You get all hot, throw some cold ice water on there. Woo, she might like it too, or he if you're gay. I don't know. You don't say. Um, but I hope that helps. And uh, if you're listening to this. And you want to follow up by with more information, you know, maybe I can get back at you later. <laughs> we, I can. I was going to make a multiple orgasm joke there, but that's not worth doing. Uh, okay, here we go. Another one. All right, this is a long one, but it's a good one. Um, all right, I want to give you a bit of background. Da, da, da. As of May, I'm a recent college graduate, extremely lucky to be in a situation where my tuition was paid for by my parents. I don't have any loans. Um, however, if I had been paying for college, I would have left. I would have quit early as I suffered through so much unnecessary stress and anxiety. I felt like my entire being was degrading, mind, body, spirit. I had to be convinced by my parents to return to school every year, every semester, it seemed, with the occasional phone call. During school where I just wanted to drop out, I just wanted to say, fuck this. It happened all the time. But since I wasn't in any real danger, getting a college degree couldn't be seen as a bad thing. So I obliged and went back. Interesting. Think, look at the way, I don't know if this is a man or woman, but look at the way they are framing that. It hurt like hell. They hated it. They felt like their entire body, mind, spirit was being degraded by this experience of being in college had to be forced practically to go back every time but since I was not in any quote real danger and it couldn't be seen as a bad thing I went back yeah yeah something that makes you feel like you're dying inside is a real danger anyway uh they say at about the halfway point I fell into deep suicidal depression there you go I didn't do any harm to myself only because I was too numbed out to everything around me. I ended up going to a psychiatrist and it turned out to be a great thing. Luckily for me, I got turned on to meditation and breathing. I still remember the first time I tried it. He just told me to close my eyes, breathe, and notice. Almost immediately, I started laughing because I never realized how loud the world was. Cars going by, wind blowing against the windows, and it all goes unnoticed. After a few of these sessions, I took a more proactive approach to life, feeling that it was almost my duty to fill in the blanks. My education and life in general was not fulfilling. Um, I had started this before, but now it was jump-started to the nth degree. I read a lot of books and other pieces of writing and media, such as your podcast, that had nothing to do with what I was studying, but I always felt that I was learning and being exposed. Much more reality... Um, had I continued down the asylum of traditional college life, Thoreau, Emerson, altered states of consciousness, deeper love and appreciation for music, Bob Dylan, Alan Watts, Rogan, you, Graham Hancock, etc. So look at what happened here. This person was getting a so-called traditional education. It wasn't working for them. It was driving them crazy. It was killing them inside. They had a crisis of the spirit. They went to a psychiatrist who luckily didn't just jack them up on some meds and, you know, numb them out so that they could continue down this this degrading, deadening path they were on. Luckily, they found a psychiatrist who said, just 
Calm the fuck down. Just breathe. Notice what's happening. Notice what you're feeling. That's the first step. Always. That's the first step. Just calm down. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day about this, relating back to what I started this podcast with, the whole, you know, my body's not, I should change my diet, I need to work out more, I need to do this, I need to do that. And, And Americans tend to make everything work. You know, everything is work. I've said this before on this podcast. It kills me when I'm in a restaurant and the waiter comes over and says, you still working on that? Fuck you, I'm eating, I'm not working. You're working. I'm not working. Ah, this is pleasure. I'm eating. It's food. It's life. No, I'm not working. That's why I don't go to gyms. I don't want to work out. Yeah, I want to exercise. I want to move my body. Sure I do. But I want to do it swimming in the fucking ocean or walking through the, o- the, the, the forest. You know, climbing on rocks, climb a tree, walk around the beautiful city, make love. Yeah, I want to use my body. I want to feel healthy, but I sure as fuck don't want to work out. I don't want to strap myself into some goddamn machine and, you know, do your quads, man, do your quads. Fuck my quads. I want my body to interact with the world in a way that makes my body feel good and makes the world a better place. That's, that's what I want to do. That's what everyone should want to do. You know, hunter-gatherers aren't doing fucking sit-ups every night. They don't need to because they live in a way that their body's happy. Uh, sorry. I'm ranting. Anyway, so this this person I was talking with is you know got you know was talking about diets and you know I got to eliminate this and add this and you know get a juicer or whatever it was, and I I was thinking man I'm just like I mean, maybe I'm full of shit but I just I have a very Mediterranean approach to these issues, which is almost always whatever ails you is best approached by just chilling out. Just relax. Just calm down. Right? And the problem with the American approach is, you know, you got to fight. You got to fight. After 9-11, what should the U.S. have done? Calm the fuck down would have been a good start. Don't panic. Right? Let's calm down. Let's think about this. We don't need to go bomb someone tomorrow. If we decide to bomb someone, we can bomb them whenever the fuck we want. But no, no. We got to bomb someone next week. The public demands it. Well, fuck the public. Fuck the public. You're in a position of leadership. The public doesn't lead. The whole thing, the whole way this thing is set up is that the public elects people who are supposed to be smarter than the public about these issues anyway. They're supposed to be experts in this kind of stuff who will calm the fuck down and breathe and think things through and figure out what's the source of this problem and then address the source. Now, terrorism, the source is injustice, inequality, a fucking imperial foreign policy. Some of you will disagree with me, but, you know, whatever. I don't have time to debate it with you, and I can't hear you anyway, so I guess we can't really debate it with you if I can't hear you. Um, But in my opinion, that's people don't blow themselves up for fun. Now, I know Sam Harris thinks people blow themselves up because they're Muslims, but I think that brand, that, that style of Islam 
is a response to the fact that those people have been fucked over for so long by so many different imperial powers that the sort of self-sacrifice militant jihadi philosophy that he decries, and I think he's accurate in his description of it, but I think it arises out of incredible injustice, consistent, maintained injustice, generation after generation. Otherwise, you know, nobody wants to blow themselves up. So in the case of physical health, um, you know, the problem isn't that we need to fight, that we need to fight and, you know, become militant in our exercise programs or in our diets or in, you know, I got to be in bed at nine o'clock every night. I can't have more than 1.5 ounces of alcohol per week. I can't, you ah, ah, calm down here. Calorie counting. No, no, just calm down. And I'm no expert on, on, on diet, but it seems to me if you eat slowly and taste the food you're eating, you're not going to eat so much food and you're not going to eat shit because you taste it. I mean, I stopped eating sugar. I, I put like a little, like half a teaspoon of sugar in coffee, and that's pretty much the only sugar I put in anything. And now, like someone gave me a candy bar the other day, and I, that candy bar was like a fucking bomb of sugar going off in my in my head it was just horrible it was like if you'd poured you know pure maple syrup right into my mouth it was just like holy fuck so your body adjusts so you know eat good shit taste it and i think you'll be pretty pretty good because your body is designed to get good stuff into you and stop you from eating bad stuff so there's a wisdom to the body and there's a wisdom to the spirit and the mind, but we need to slow the fuck down. We need to breathe. We need to close our eyes. We need to be honest with ourselves and we need to notice what's going on. So back to the letter. Um, as scattered and disappointed as I was, I went to three schools in three years. And luckily, the third was in New Jersey near the Pine Barrens, where I opened up to nature for the first time. I spent countless hours walking around and exploring as much of the place as I could during my time there. I started down the path of trying to learn how to hunt and the plethora of knowledge you need to know in order to do so. But it was very difficult to engage and find a steady mentor while at the school. In addition to the exploration of new ideas and possibility, I would also do things in a very unorthodox way, like walking around barefoot as much as I could, reconnecting my body with my body through martial arts, yoga, uh, breathing exercises, bringing plants from nature just out of sheer interest, uh, learning to name them. Uh, eventually I stumbled across Stephen Herod Booner, who has books on more or less how to become a nature philosopher using the cognition of your heart, experiencing nature directly like Thoreau, Goethe, Goethe, Buckminster Fuller. Um, yeah. Okay. So this person, look at what's happened. Their conventional education was, was, wasn't working for them. They had a spiritual crisis. They went to a psychiatrist at this pivotal moment in their lives. The psychiatrist said, calm down, breathe, notice what's going on around you. You know, the person talks about the cars and the window, the wind on the windows, but also you're noticing the winds that are blowing through your soul. You're noticing, you know, the, the, the movement within your body, within your spirit. You're noticing what's changing in you, what's growing in you, what's dying in you. 
And we don't pay attention to that stuff. But then look at the pivot. Look at the amazing pivot. Suddenly, they go from suicidal depression, numbed out. The only reason he or she didn't, didn't hurt themselves is because they're too numb to bother. And now suddenly they're like, oh, my God, podcasts, books, music, loving it. The forest, nature, learning to name plants, learning to hunt, learning to walk and feel their feet on the earth. This is education. This is true education. I don't give a fuck if you have a degree. You know, I joke about PhD because it's bullshit. It's bullshit. I only got a PhD so that people who give a shit about those sorts of things would publish a book I wrote. That was the only reason I did it. I never thought I was going to teach anywhere. My God, that'd be terrible. You know, I mean, I think I'd be a decent teacher, but you couldn't trust me with couldn't trust me with students. I'd be, you know, telling them all to go fuck each other, have orgies, do drugs. I mean, you know, I'd get run out of town on a rail in no time at all, especially in America. So, no, I had no intention of of trying to, you know, get an academic career. I had passed that exit a long time ago on the highway of my life. So. You know, for those of you who think it's a joke that uh, I've got a PhD after my name, I agree. I'm with you. Anyway, so this person's getting an education. This is how you get an education, not by sitting in a room listening to some, you know, asshole drone on and on all day. You get an education by, by, I read somewhere, like, education is not, how, how did they say it? Oh, there's a good, it was a good, I think it was Plato or Socrates or something. And the quote was something like, um, you know, you you don't teach by forcing knowledge. You teach by uh, cultivating a fire. That it's like you just the the information you give someone is like putting a stick on a campfire. You don't want to put too much because then you put the fire out. You don't you know someone who says, "Oh, I like to read. What should I read?" You don't say Ulysses by James Joyce. You know that's a great place to start. That'll just kill them. Um, you give them like some short stories. You give, what are you into? Oh, I don't know, Indians. Oh, well, then Black Elk Speaks, man. That's an amazing book, and it really is, and it's easy. You know, philosophy, oh, sexuality. Uh, how about um, The Unbearable Lightness of Being? Fantastic. Travel, oh, you know, some of Herman Melville, Taipei Umu, some of those books are fantastic. And if you really like the way he writes, work your way up through the short stories. Bartleby the Scrivener. Uh, work your way up to Moby Dick, you know. Um, but don't start with Moby Dick. There are ways to cultivate the fire of knowledge so that it starts off as a little bit of curiosity and it ends up a fucking raging inferno. That's what education is. And if you have a teacher who can do that, which is hard because you have to know the person, right? You have to know who this kid is. What are they interested in? What's the trajectory of their lives so that I can lay out the things for them that's going to get them where they want to go. That's a true teacher. But you can't do that with 30 or 40 people in a room at the same time. You can do that with two or three people, four or five people most at the most. Um, so, yeah, if you find a teacher like that, you know, whether that is a, an official teacher or it's just some guy who lives down the street who knows a lot about books or cars or chemistry or whatever it is that you're interested in, then, yeah, that's a great way to be educated. But if you don't happen to find that person, then do what this person's done. Pursue your own knowledge. Information is free. It's everywhere, especially now with the Internet. You don't need school. You don't need diplomas. You just need passion. 
And the best way to have passion is to feed it. Feed it little pieces and let it grow. Okay, back to the letter. Now, instead of planning for the future and continuation of modern life, I decided to travel this summer, first with smaller trips, then the big open-ended one I'm on now. Oh, cool, driving around America. While I was at school, I'd go on very long walks where I would try to get lost, where I would try to get myself lost in the woods and then try to find my way back. Just so the sheer excitement of every part of the country I truly know nothing about was enough to hook me into this trip. Growing up in the suburbs doesn't really do much for you unless you make an active effort to look around, and I felt and still feel my ignorance to the world around me. This trip has been great, and I could talk about individual moments and days I'm quite fond of. But you obviously know the travel life quite well, and I want to shift the attention to questions, greater questions of reality. Okay, so this person is on an interesting trip, right? Now, I still don't know if it's he or she. I don't want to use the person's name, but it's a name that could be male or female. Uh, Okay. A major reason for the trip was that eventually I wanted to settle down in one place rich with so many things I'm fond of, which is probably a fantasy. Among them, the most important is the sense of community. I've gotten a greater sense of community within the transient people passing in travel than I had in daily life I was exposed to before, which completely blows my mind. I found that as well. There's a real sense of community among travelers, which is counterintuitive because that group is mixing up all the time. People are coming and going all the time, so there's not continuity within the specific people. But because everyone shares this experience of traveling, the community forms really quickly. Uh, That's me talking now. Okay, back to the letter. I read about and saw secondhand descriptions and interactions of the power of community, but I had never experienced it myself. The main problem with a lot of traveling community I've come across is the focus on instantaneous pleasures without a concern of what will come next. And while that's a beautiful thing, the craziness of the world always creeps in to the crevices of these interactions. And this is only a reflection of the headspace I'm in and what I've felt. I want everyone to experience what I have, or at least give them an equal opportunity to experience what they love in the world. And no matter where you go, the enterprise of this country is still going. I set out to look for some part of the country that was doing everything with purpose of changing the outcome of our interaction with this beautiful sacred planet we live on with the power of community. I wanted to see people in the streets energetic and alive about the situation we live in through any means of their individual genius, whether it's protest songs, art, sustainable approaches, anything that can spread the message of change in a positive direction. But instead, I'm finding the same old shit, and maybe I'm not looking in the right places. Well... I hear this. I definitely hear this because you're right. Especially in America, commerce rules. It rules everywhere. It's hard to find a place where it doesn't. One of the things I want to do with this van is find places like what this person's looking for and I'm looking for and I imagine a lot of you are looking for a place where there is a sense of community and meaning and people doing something that's worth doing and helping their neighbors and um, trying to do something new without being, you know, too burning man about it. Uh, Not that I've, I've never been to burning man. So please pardon me for that low blow you burners out there. I know it's a beautiful thing, Um, but it's very dusty and my lack of, you know, 
I don't have to worry about getting a sunburn on my teeth, but the rest of my body can be uh, problematic in the desert in August. Uh, anyway, back to this uh, back to this long but interesting email. Part of me was under the belief that I'd find this place in America, uh, that it would be everything I'd hoped to be, and who knows, maybe it does exist. But I know that I need to balance my idealism with a sense of reality. Um, I know I can't be the only one who views the world this way. I can't be the only one who doesn't want to wait for the world to end. Yeah. The two candidates for this presidency are Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Are you fucking kidding me? Who the fuck is voting for these demonic entities of destruction? Even if the right person was put in office, maybe they wouldn't have that much impact. But these are the choices? I've never been a figurehead person, and I know I want to see the true impact of this country, the people. The people should be freaking the fuck out, and I don't see anything happening. Be the change you want the world, you want to see in the world. I know, I've heard it, but I know the power of a group of people rather than just a single entity acting out, and it's foolish to try to tackle this alone. I really do want to have a positive impact on the world, not because it looks good on paper, but because we live in it. We're part of this dynamic system, and to remove and put ourselves on the outside of this is the cause of the initial problem. Just by shifting that thought in your mind though only the first step in who knows how many, the approach of life becomes so divergent from the path we've been on, and I have no fucking clue what to do about it. All I get is the same, get a job, and all will be known fraud advice when I try to ask people. My interests are way too vast, and I see myself undercutting the possibility of exploration in an array of fields for the sole purpose of earning a living. And even if I do explore these things, I don't know how I'm supposed to use them to help this world. Maybe I'm the ignorant one. Maybe my lack of contribution is the problem. But it just doesn't feel right. Why aren't we getting up and helping each other, seeing each and every person as brothers and sisters in the same human family? How come when we know what the problem is or the identification that there is a problem, we continue to go down the same road in a one-size-fits-all manner when there's so much diversity and so much we've misunderstood through this narrow lens of our society? Do I just need to settle my mind, or are these concerns reasonable? Everything seems like an abstraction on top of an abstraction. I just have no idea if I'm losing my mind or if reality is structured in a way to do this to every human who has a feeling to oppose the current system. Ah, there's the nub of it. So let me read that again. He or she says, do I just need to settle my mind or are my concerns reasonable? What do you think? They seem pretty fucking reasonable to me. But of course, they're reasonable if you're looking at the world through the eyes of someone who is not restricted, whose vision is not restricted to accepted reality. If you're looking beyond that, as I think all of you are, otherwise, you're not, why would you be listening to me? Um, then, it, then it's, this is totally reasonable. In fact, it's unavoidable, this pain that this person is experiencing. By the way, the person's name is Tyler. I assume it's cool to use his or her name. Um, yeah, Tyler, it's totally reasonable. Totally. The problem is you live in a sick society like we all do. And in a sick society, the healthy person is fucked. And you're trying to be healthy. I think that's what a lot of us are trying to do. 
We're like, we're like fish in a poison river, and we're, we're trying to find a way to be healthy, but we're in a poison river. And it's hard because we're all swimming in it. We're all drinking it. It's, we're all made of it. So, yeah, it's fucking hard. Um, and I admire you for trying. I admire you for even just recognizing what's going on. But I also feel a lot of compassion for you because I know that um, it hurts like hell. And there's no escape in the Poison River. Um, you know, and then Tyler says, everything seems like an abstraction on top of an abstraction. And I have no idea if I'm losing my mind or if reality is structured in a way to do this to every human who has the impulse to oppose the current system. See, I think that's the nub. What is reality in this sentence? Am I losing my mind? No, Tyler, you're not losing your mind. But your mind is in conflict with what you've just called reality here, right? So that feels like you're losing your mind. Of course it does, because you look around and you say, wait a minute, either everything is bullshit and I'm right, or I'm losing my fucking mind. And very few other people seem to think that everything is bullshit, so I must be losing my mind. The problem is very few people are as smart as you are, as insightful as you are, uh, have had the crisis, the spiritual crisis that you had and found a psychiatrist who was smart and cool enough to put you on the path that you're on rather than deadening you with medications or sending you to a fucking clinic somewhere where, you know, you've been told you're sick and, and you need to be institutionalized or whatever the fuck they do. You're on a real path. You're on a path with heart, as Castaneda's Don Juan put it, un camino con corazón. But it's a difficult path because it's a path where, that you walk barefoot. You feel every stone you step on. You feel every cactus that, you know, every needle that sticks in you. That's what it's like to be on a path with heart. And that's what you're doing. And unfortunately, we live in a moment, a historical moment, where this whole charade is starting to fall apart. And if you're paying attention, you're going to see that. You're going to see that the ice caps are melting. You're going to see that the storms are coming in stronger and stronger. You're going to see that there are earthquakes in Oklahoma that are caused by fracking. You're going to see... Uh, you know, fish disappearing more and more from the oceans and the rivers and, you know, birds falling from the sky and the bees disappearing and the, you know, the whole fucking thing is falling apart. And so it's a good time to close your eyes, really. It's a good time not to pay attention, but you're fucked because you're paying attention. You can't help it. That's who you are. I can't help it. That's who I am. And I think pretty much everyone listening to this is in the same fucking boat. So, but the good news is, no, you're not losing your mind. The bad news is, yes, reality is structured in a way to do this to every human who has the impulse to oppose the current system. It is. And that's what I was trying to get at in this manuscript. 
and you know that I had to cut out and save for the next book, which is that reality, in quotes, air quotes, reality, socially constructed reality, is a system. It's a living system, just like you're a living system, I'm a living system, a, a hive of bees is a living system, an ant colony, a termite mound, a flock of fucking seagulls. These are all living systems, and they all want to stay alive. The system wants to persist. And so the system develops out of the system emerge self-replicating mechanisms that sounds complicated but it really isn't uh think of it this way a, you know there's uh a glacier starts to melt so suddenly there's all this water running down the hill because this big glacier is melting. And all this water is running down the hill for the first time. It runs down the hill toward the, toward the ocean, right? So it finds a path. It cuts around this rock, cuts through that, cuts this. Now, at, the longer that water flows, the more it digs into that path. The longer it flows, the less likely it is that it's going to jump over to a new path. So the system that has developed, the system that has emerged from this flowing water, the interaction of the flowing water, the gravity, and the landscape between the glacier and the ocean, the system, which we call the path of the stream, that system is going to persist the longer that stream runs, the deeper it gets, and eventually you get the Grand fucking Canyon, right? The Grand Canyon can be seen as a system. It can be seen as a path that's been cut, which is what it was, a path that's been cut through the Earth's crust over, I don't know, tens, hundreds of thousands of years by the Colorado River. So it's going, the deeper it gets, the less likely it is that it's going to jump the banks and form a new path, right? Unless the flow of water changes radically or there's an earthquake or some other sort of outside disruption. So the tendency is for the system to persist. That works with culture as well. So you get a system like the United States, which is a system made of systems, made of systems, obviously, but you get this giant organism, this giant living thing, and what does it eat? It eats profit. It eats ambition. That's the blood flowing through it, this ambition and, and, and the, the search for money and the destruction of the natural world as a way to convert you know, natural resources into profit, into products, into shit that people buy so that then you can generate income so that the, the, the quarterly reports from the corporation go higher and higher and the stock, stock price goes up and the whole thing just spins and spins and spins. It's got its own momentum. So, of course, it throws out sort of um, meaning. It throws out value systems. It throws out ethical systems. It throws out self um image it throws out this idea that you know we're the best and we're the greatest and we're never satisfied and that's a good thing and we're defending peace in the middle east and we're you know it's our job to uh you know to be the the world's policeman and it sends out all these all these packets of meaning that replicate and preserve the system of meaning that's in place, because that's what cultures do. It's not just America. England did the same thing. England, the whole thing was, you know, we're more educated and sophisticated than everyone else. We've got the burden to civilize the world. Those poor Indian heathens need us to come there and put in the trains and, you know, dig canals and bring them government and all these wonderful things that we're bringing to the Indians. 
you know, also we're fucking stealing all the gold. We're taking all the minerals. We're, you know, shipping out all the fucking fruits and, you know, whatever. The whole fucking empire was running on exploiting their lands, right? Just like all empires are. But what do the people who run the empire say to themselves? They say, we're doing them a great favor. You know, just like a lot of rapists say, dude, she wanted it. Oh, you know, she wanted it. Oh, yeah, she said she didn't, but she really did. Well, there's empire for you. That's how empire works. It's fucking rape that the rapist says, come on, no, we were, we were making love. Right? She wanted it. Of course she did. You know India wanted those British there. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so systems justify themselves. They build up structures of meaning that make the worldview that justifies that system palatable and overwhelming. So what happens is when you're a 25-year-old kid or 23 or whatever Tyler is and you're looking at the world really for the first time or at least, you know, you're just sort of wrapping your head around this shit for the first time, you could think you're fucking losing your shit because you're like, holy fuck, this is all, this is all bullshit, but it all fits together really well. Like, and then you get conspiracy theorists who say, oh, it's the fucking Bundenberg group or whatever. It's the, you know, Freemasons or something. They're running the whole show. No, that's an unsophisticated understanding of what's happening. Nobody's running the show. The show is running us. That's what's happening here. The show is running us. Nobody is running Exxon. Exxon is running everyone. I've said this before. If the CEO of Exxon took some fucking ayahuasca or tripped on some mushrooms or went into a sensory deprivation tank with Joe Rogan and had a fucking mind-blowing experience and went to work the next day and said, holy fuck, what are we doing here, people? We can't drill in the Arctic. We're destroying the planet. This is crazy. We can't do this. We got to stop. We got to shift our incredible resources to all passive energy as soon as possible. We need to tell the world. We need to save the planet. Now, you and I say, hey, finally, someone's got some fucking sense. Finally, it's probably too late. But, hey, at least someone's saying something true in the boardrooms at Exxon Central, right? That makes perfect sense to us. What doesn't make sense is, oh, let's just keep fucking pumping oil, right? But that's what they're doing. Anyway, someone goes in and says that. The CEO goes in and says that. He has this huge experience. What's going to happen? He'll be fired by lunch. And if the board of directors happens to agree with him and refuses to fire him, the goddamn shareholders will fire their board of directors. Because Exxon runs them. Nobody runs Exxon. It's an illusion that we're driving this bus. The bus is driving us. It's an illusion that there are any seagulls who are saying, hey, let's turn left up here. No. It just happens. It just happens. The flock just turns. The salmon swim into the net. The fucking herd of ox go over the cliff. And it's the hardest thing in the world to stop a herd of oxes that's headed toward a cliff. And that's where we are. And the reason you feel like you're losing your mind is you're one of those salmon who are going, shit, isn't that a net up ahead of us? And if I see it, why doesn't everyone else? And if everyone sees it, why are we still swimming toward that net? That's where you are. You're fucked. So am I. So are the rest of us. But you're not losing your mind. 
At least that's my opinion. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, that's the end of his, his or her message here. It says at times... Oh, wait, let me pick it up here. It says, I want to have great experiences, but it's always tainted by heaviness of the earth and the growing appendage of the feeling of want of waning time left here. At times I'm so overwhelmed, I don't even know what should be done because I know this isn't a quick fix situation. And what does a 23-year-old know about the world anyway? But something that requires real work from the people of the earth. If you've read this far, I can't thank you enough. You can be blunt with me as possible, but... Um, yeah, even if you don't read it, it was useful for me to write this. Yeah, Tyler, look, I don't know who you are, but you're a very good writer. You're a very smart kid. And I don't mean that kid in an insulting way. You know, I'm more than twice your age, so I get to call you a kid with affection. Um, and yeah, I'm with you. I don't know why more people don't feel the way you do. Um, and I think maybe the only hope we have is that maybe more people than we know do feel the way you do, even if they haven't articulated it as well as you have. Um, I think, you know, what you call uh, the growing appendage of the feeling of the waning time left here. I think that is a generalized feeling that a lot of people have, especially people your age. I think I mean, I just spent last week with Josh Fox and um, a lot of his friends who are environmental activists and Bernie Sanders, political activists. And let me tell you that that feeling is very strong among them. That feeling of what the fuck? What the fuck are we doing here? You know, uh, the political thing in the situation now is like, you know, we need... We need a glass of clean, fresh water, and what we're being offered is, you know, a glass of shit and a glass of piss, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, what do you want? Well, I wanted water, frankly. I don't want either one of those things. Donald Trump, homicidal maniac, who didn't even want to be president, he's just doing this to increase his brand so he can get richer, the fucking miserable fuck. Or Hillary Clinton, you know, who's so power hungry by now that she's probably lost all sense of why she wanted to be in politics in the first place and so corrupted by the process that, you know, she's owned by the companies that she would supposedly have to rein in. Like, it's, uh, No, no, sorry, neither one. You know, Hillary Clinton, who's like good friends with fucking Henry Kissinger, who thought killing a million Cambodians was a good idea and, and deposing Pinochet in, uh, in Chile using the CIA completely illegally. No, these are, these are the same fucking people, who, you know, go, go golfing with Dick Cheney and George Bush Sr. No, 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 thank you. None of, none of the above. Yeah, but that's where we are. At one of the most pivotal moments in human history, we're being awful, offered, you know, Tweedledum and Tweedledumer. No, thanks. But I don't have any other answers. Uh, other than to write a book called Civilized to Death, which will be coming out next year. Don't know when, but hopefully before the world ends. <laughs> I actually I actually said something about that in the preface. Like, I wonder if, how many authors have said, i got to finish this book before the world ends. Strange way to motivate yourself to finish a book. All right, I've been talking for over an hour. I've only done two fucking emails. 
this is terrible. I start every one of these thinking I'm going to read like 10 or 15 emails and I just go off on these stupid rants and then it's just too, I don't know. Should I try another one? Oh, this is a long one. No, I can't do that one. Sorry. Uh, wait a minute. All right. How about this one? This is a short one. Oh, I'm a huge fan of your work, and I'm looking forward to Civilized to Death. I was wondering what your thoughts are on Ted Kaczynski and his manifesto. What do you think of him about him as a person, his actions, and more importantly, the ideas in his manifesto? I ask because he seems to share many of your ideas about civilization. Brendan. Yeah, Brendan, I answered one of your emails. You sent me... I, I didn't get to this one, and then you sent me an excerpt from something that Kaczynski wrote. For those of you who don't know, Kaczynski is the Unabomber, also known as the Unabomber. He uh, shares a lot of my concerns about civilization, and uh, and he decided to start blowing people up as his way of responding to it. So what do I think of him? I, From what I've read of his manifesto, I agree with a lot of it, as you suspected I would. I think his critiques of civilization are generally... Now, again, I, I haven't studied his manifesto. I've read some of it. I don't remember how much of it I read, but I read some of it. And then I read the thing that you, Brendan, sent me a few days ago, um, which was uh, sort of a takedown of... Um, the sort of anarcho, what are they called, anarcho-utopians or something, who, people who argue that prehistory was perfect in every way. And I'm kind of bored with that because, you know, that's the way people attack me. That's the way people are going to attack me when Civilized to Death comes out. Um, it's a very simple, easy, cheap, dismissive shot to take. Um, and in in Civilized to Death, I go into the origin of the term noble savage. And it's very interesting because it was never used by Rousseau, even though that's, you know, that's what everyone will say. They'll say, oh, you know, Christopher Ryan, he's, you know, a Rousseauian uh, romantic talking about the noble savage. Well, Rousseau never used the term. The term was invented by someone who was using it to ridicule people who argued against racism. In other words, it was it was, the term w was first used by a guy I don't remember what his name was, but he was the head of the British Anthropological Association, I think, and he was arguing he was ridiculing people who said black people are not inferior to white people. He was saying, you know, they're they're uncivilized people are not inferior to uncivilized people to civilized people they're they're just as intelligent they're just living in a different way so it's a different kind of intelligence so yeah you grab some guy from the congo and bring him to london he's not going to know how to ride a horse he's never fucking seen a horse he's not going to know how to eat with a knife and fork but that doesn't mean he's less intelligent that doesn't, you know, he's, okay, he's less civilized, but that's your civilization. It's what you call civilization. Um, so uh, anyway, this guy was arguing against the view that all people were equal, which was considered a ridiculous view in the, whenever it was, I think it was the 1800s. And so he 
came up with this term like oh you you know you fucking hippies are you you calling the noble savage that these were noble savages and no one ever used the term no one on my side of the argument ever used the term it was used to to you know ridicule people on my side of the argument and so you know it's a straw man straw caveman as i call it so there's no uh you know, I'm not certainly, and I don't believe Thoreau or uh, Rousseau was either. No one's saying that that was heaven, that that was perfect. No, life was not perfect before civilization, but it's gotten worse, significantly worse. And if you read Civilized to Death, you'll see that I I respond to people like Matt Ridley, who wrote um, the the Rational Optimist, which is a, a book length takedown of people like me or attempted takedown so i respond to his arguments and his arguments are fucking ridiculous they're pathetic i mean he there's this list he goes through like you know these people who who decry modernity uh you know ignore the fact that uh human life has gotten better in every way it can be measured we've got more mango peelers and more tennis rackets and more megahertz and more it's, and he just goes through like all these things that didn't exist in prehistory right tennis rackets really that's how you're fucking measuring quality of life mango peelers and these are quotes these are actual things on his list megahertz what the fuck are you talking about man anyway you got to read the book i'll be talking about it a lot more as it as it gets close to coming out but uh what the fuck am i talking about here what was oh oh ted kaczynski so yeah i agree with a lot of his uh, critiques of civilization as I do with Marx, by the way. I think Marx had brilliant critiques of, of capitalism. But the problem is, in both cases, Marx and the Unabomber, when they tried to then decide what to do about these insult, insights, they fucked up big time. I don't believe that blowing a scientist's hands off with your package bomb is moving the world even a nanometer closer to where we want to go. Just like, you know, cap, uh, communism was not an advance for our, for our species, uh, despite the legitimacy of the critique of capitalism, despite the legitimacy of uh, Kaczynski's critique of civilization, killing a scientist or an advertising executive or a fucking, you know, colonel in the military or whatever isn't going to change anything because of precisely what I was saying before. We're not driving the bus. The bus is driving us. So you strangle the guy sitting in the driver's seat. It doesn't matter. He's not driving the thing. All you've done is hurt, is, is hurt another person. You haven't changed anything. In order to change something, there needs to be a ground swell of recognition. There needs to be learning. There needs to be something that makes a whole lot of us go what the fuck we got to rethink this whole thing and sending a package bomb to someone isn't going to achieve that i think honestly i think probably the only thing that's going to achieve that is global calamity on a huge scale whether that's a meteor hitting the planet and you know, wow, half the people are gone or just a horrible, horrible period of global war and 
starvation and, um, you know, thirst, which is what we've entered already. Um, I, I don't know, but it seems to me that trajectory is really important and the fish are going to keep swimming into the net. Maybe I, I'm doing what I can. You're doing what you can raise the alarm spread the message. Josh Fox and his friends are doing what they can. By the way, if you haven't seen his last film, I can't recommend it enough. It's it's really worth seeing. And a lot of it was filmed on the farm where I just was. So if you want to see where the party was and the, the opening scene where he's dancing is like right where the party was happening, where dinner was in his house. Uh, it's called How to Let Go of the World and Love All the Things that Climate change can't take away i think but anyway it's how to let go of the world it's on it's available on youtube uh itunes i'm sure it's on amazon and wherever you know you can see films but i'd really highly recommend it because it talks about all these issues it talks about the despair it talks about the loneliness it talks about the hopelessness but that's only the first part of the film. And then he turns and he says, okay, what are the things that are amazing about our species? What are the, if there is an answer, if there's a way out, where is it? What is it? And that's when he looks at community. That's when he looks at the incredible power that even 20, 30, 40 people can have to change the course of history. And he goes out and meets some of those people in the Amazon and in other parts of the world. So really, check it out. If these things are important to you, if these things are on your mind, I highly recommend that uh, that piece of of work. Um, it'll give you food for thought, and it will hopefully give you nourishment for your spirit and your heart so you don't give up. I'm trying not to give up. It's a beautiful day in Amsterdam, but I'm going to give up on this podcast, this particular episode. It's been almost an hour and a half of me talking. I'm fucking tired of listening to my voice. I'm sure you are too. So I am going to ask you to support this podcast. If you enjoy this, God knows why you would, but apparently you're still listening at one minute, no, one hour, 21 minutes and 54 seconds. So you must, right? You must. Uh, if you can afford it, please join the small community of people who are supporting this podcast on Patreon.com. A lot of people are given a buck a month, and that's wonderful. It's just strength in numbers, people. So, you know, if everyone who listened to this gave a buck a month, I'd be ro- I'd have a Coke addiction. I'd, ha- I'd be driving a Lamborghini. But you don't, do you, you freeloaders? Um, but whatever. If you've got a buck a month and you want to join the community, stand up and be heard, you can support this podcast through patreon.com. And I also put like some bonus content on there just for the patrons of the podcast. I just sent up something today, a picture of Wim Hof and me at the ice farm. Um, and I put a, a video of the sailboat that I was living on. So I gave you a little tour of the sailboat. So if you become a patron, you'll get that bonus Material. I promise no dick pics. I will not send you dick pics. I might send you Anthony Weiner's dick pics, but not my own. Uh, what else? Uh, yeah, through Amazon, you know, that old thing. If you buy shit on Amazon and you go through my webpage, click on, you know, go to chrisryanphd.com, click on that Amazon ad in the side panel there, then bookmark that and use that as your Amazon landing page. Everything you buy at Amazon 
they'll give me some of their money. It's a weird thing. Don't know why they do it, but they do for now. Doesn't cost you any more. They don't like raise the price and then tell you it's on sale. No, they charge you the same thing they were going to charge you anyway. They just give me some money because I sent you there. So go figure. That's another great way to support the podcast at no extra cost to you. If you're poor, if you're like that person who's living in her, his or her car driving around the country, well, don't fucking send me anything. Take care of yourself. Someday you'll you'll have money and you can send it to me or send it to someone else. Doesn't matter. Uh, that's it. And remember, no matter how hopeless you feel, no matter how sad you get, no matter how overwhelming that feeling of end times becomes, look out your window, go for a walk in the woods, go down to the beach, and notice that right now, there's still overwhelming beauty everywhere. And just try to bathe your soul in that. Because, you know, in the end it ends. But it's not over yet. As I say these words, it's a beautiful day. I see the I see the sun reflecting off the water outside this apartment. I see the clouds in the sky. I see birds flying by. I see people walking in the street healthy and happy. And we've got that. So let's enjoy it while it lasts, even if it feels like it's not going to last much longer. Maybe that's even more reason to dance while the music's still playing. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song that's sort of uh, been on my mind a lot this summer. It's uh, called Mykonos, which is one of the islands in uh, the Greek Aegean, I think it is. Uh, it's in the Mediterranean. It's uh, it's a beautiful island. I haven't been to Mykonos. I've been to Santorini and Naxos and one other island in the same area. They're all beautiful. Mykonos is sort of famous as a gay party island, but I don't think that's what this song is about. I think it's more about just the sort of mystery and beauty of the Greek islands and uh, of life itself. So there's a line in the song that has been sort of echoing in my mind as I've been recording this podcast. Uh, it's a simple, very simple song. Uh, he says, And you will go to Mykonos with a vision of a gentle coast and a sun to maybe dissipate shadows of the mess you made. I don't know exactly what he's referring to there, but it wouldn't surprise me if whoever wrote that song is was thinking about some of the things that uh, we've been talking about today. The sun to maybe dissipate, shadows of the mess you made. That's where we are. All right, hope you enjoy this song, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of the community. I don't know who I'd be talking to if it weren't for you people. I'd be raving on a street corner somewhere. So thanks. Catch you next time. Steps far.